Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We don't know how, we don't know when, but death comes for us all. To be human is to wrestle with this truth and with the great unanswered question, how do we live with death in our eye? Helen Whitney's new documentary film, Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death, which premieres nationwide on PBS on March 26th, 8 p.m. in Utah on KUED, features fascinating unexpected voices from various walks of life, old and young, believers and non-believers, dying and healthy, well-known and obscure, all unified by their dramatic experience of death. For each of them, death is no longer an abstraction far away in the future, whether through a dire prognosis, the imminence of their own death, loss of a loved one, sudden epiphany, or temperament born to question. These are people who have truly awakened to their own mortality. Helen Whitney is an Oscar-nominated Emmy and Peabody Award-winning film producer, director, and writer. She's a prolific creator of documentaries and feature films. Her uh, subject matter has included topics such as youth gangs, presidential candidates, the McCarthy era, mental illness, Pope John Paul II, Great Britain's class structure, homosexuality, and photographer Richard Avedon. And her films include The Monastery, John Paul II, Millennial Pope, The Mormons, Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, Forgiveness, A Time to Love and A Time to Hate. And Helen Whitney uh, joins us uh, for the program. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for inviting me. Uh, we've had the uh, t- chess talk on a couple of your previous films, on the Mormons and on Forgiveness, uh, s- some uh, fascinating work. Um, let's hear the trailer first. Then I want to ask you why this subject matter and, and why now. Let's hear this. go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. To accept the dying light is to just give up. We don't know what we can do with life extension research. Don't go gently. Understanding that, yes, I am going to see my savior. I must be gentle. You should be embracing the dying of the light. You should be curious. I know quite a few people who get excited about having that spiritual body. I like my body. I'm not ready to be a spirit yet. Everything that we do, from building cathedrals to having children, the thrust of it is our fear of death. I started out working at a crematorium to really zero in on my fears. I have dogs for that answer. It's gonna make it all right. So I want to build my own coffin. The fear of death led me into the darkest of places. To my young, angry, vulnerable teenage mind, martyrdom was a one-way ticket into paradise. Cryonics is essentially an extension of emergency medicine at the point of clinical death. Let us take over and then take you to a time in the future when there's more advanced medical capabilities. I'm up in the corner where the walls come together, and I'm aware that's my body. And then, abruptly, I'm in the tunnel. It's real. How many times have I said, well, we're all going to die? It doesn't mean the same thing when you know you're dying. Acknowledging my mortality has rewritten my capacity to love and to see love in the world. Now I think that if there is a holy grail, it has to be uncertainty. And that's the beauty of it. It's not like you get a second chance. You're on that merry-go-round for one ride, and really, it's a ride that we never fully understand. Death is really the central mystery. 
There's the trailer to the film. The film is Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death. It's the new film from uh, Helen Whitney, and it premieres on PBS on March 26th. Uh, here in Utah, KWD, uh, the time is 8 p.m. Uh, for that premiere. Uh, so, Helen Whitney, uh, you've had um, you know a lot of different topics. The Mormons, uh, the monastery, faith and doubt at ground zero, forgiveness, time to love and a time to hate. Uh, mortality, a big subject. Why, uh, why the subject? Well, you know, a number of friends have asked me that same question, and I think the simplest answer, and there are several, but is that I'm of that age. I'm a baby of the baby boomer generation, and I've had friends die, and close friends are, are, are dying right now, and, you know, you know, these questions are inescapably pressing in on me and, and anyone of my generation. There's a wonderful quote from the poet, I think it's Philip Larkin, that says, death is the roar underneath everything, and uh, it, it, it really began to, its roar began to be heard in a distinctive way in the last sort of five, five, ten years. And also, you know, one of the great sort of privileges of being a documentary producer is that you, it's like it provides you cover, it's like a camouflage to ask the questions you've always wanted to ask, uh, and I did want to ask about how do people face this great mystery? How do they, you know, how do they live knowing that they will one day die? And I was able to have in the last three years the most riveting, illuminating, and yes, at times, you know, saddening conversations with a range of people, many, many people, in addition to the nine whom are chose, who are chosen, whom I chose for the for the film. So that's, you know, that's really, that's, I guess, the simplest answer to your question, even though, as you said, a lot of the topics I have chosen over the last, really, 35 years of making films have always had embedded in them these sort of existential themes, whether it's the forgiveness or the Mormons or... or um, the monastery is, you know, what is of ultimate faith? What are, what are we living for? What are we dying for? And finally, with this film, it's like those questions. I, I mean, it's like I came out of the closet. I was able to ask them directly at this point in my life. Uh, do, do you, uh, the, the joining theme of the people you chose, um, they, they have death maybe more present than some of us do, they, either by a near-death experience or a friend dying or they're facing their imminent death. Uh, they're awakened, you might say, to, to their own mortality. Is that an a accurate characterization? That is an a- absolutely spot-on characterization. And the interesting thing that I discovered is that visceral knowledge as opposed to the theoretical knowledge which we all have we all say so easily i know that one day i will die that's the human condition but people who are shocked into it for any of those reasons and all of them are explored in the film are never the same and it can be the most sort of uh inciting and transforming sort of jolt of their life and when you it and and it becomes then not how do i die but how do i live knowing that i will be dying 
and uh, these people that they all describe the change uh, that they go through and and the the crafting of or revisiting of narratives that they thought had sustained them and no longer do, or a deepening of the narratives of you know of what is of value in their lives, and and I just you know that knowledge that to get it together now and live consciously now, not some far off time in the future. So, uh, that's a good way of describing it. Each and every one of the people in this film has been changed by that visceral knowledge, not the abstract knowledge, but the visceral knowledge that they one day really, in fact, will die. <laughs> There's this great William Saroyan quote that one of the characters sort of spoke to, uh, quoted, which was on his death, that he allegedly said, I, I knew that I, everyone dies, but somehow I thought an exception would be made in my case. <laughs> <laughs> I think that a lot of us have a little bit of that. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. And it affects how you live, right? That's and that's a theme. Also, you use the word narrative. I want to get back to that as the stories. The, the stories are powerful. Uh, but first, let's hear this. Uh, let's hear a clip. And uh, you've been quoted, I read in an interview, as saying that you you thought this would probably, you know, hit with the, with baby boomers, maybe uh, people moving into middle age. Um, but you found... There's a lot of young people, um, you know, exploring this topic, and the, the first person up in your film is uh, Caitlin Doty. She's a she's a mortician, mortician on purpose. She wanted to face her fear of of, of death. Let's hear just about a minute uh, from from the film. This is the mortician. I like to say that the Grim Reaper has his hand up all of our butts because we really are puppets of death and mortality, and puppets of the fear of death, and everything that we do from building cathedrals to having children to having jobs and careers is all, the thrust of it is our fear of death. Caitlin Doherty is one of the leaders in a new movement to make death visible, to break the silence, a silence that reverberates. Young people are meeting in death salons and in death cafes. Older people are following them. These gatherings started in Switzerland, moved to England, and are now spreading throughout the Western world. Caitlin is determined to understand death and to end our estrangement from the dead body. Welcome to Death Salon San Francisco. Thank you. Yes, yes. Joyful noise. Joyful noise. So that's Caitlin Doty. You heard the voice of Sharon Stone there, who's the narrator for the film as well. Um, so Caitlin Doty's pretty young and, and these death salons are being, being, uh, frequented by young people. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the big surprises for me as I began the research for this film, because you're right, I assumed, you know, there would be a huge audience for this film because there are a lot of people entering midlife, a lot of baby boomers, and also a lot of people who have been touched, you know, close up and personal by death or the possibility of death. But I didn't expect this really emerging young movement. There are two of them. There's the Death Cafe movement and the Death Salon movement. The, the Death Cafes 
movement began in, in Switzerland and moved to England and then came here, and that's for all ages. People gather together, together in small cafes and really talk about their hopes and fears around this subject, but the death salon movement is primary, primarily young millennials. They gather together, to some extent, it has almost a feel of a of a mixer, but it's quite studious. They have lectures about green burials and and you know new philosophies and you know and it's just you know the age is thirty two, thirty three, thirty four, and and younger and younger. And I do think that they are tapping into what I think has taken over the whole culture, and it's a seismic shift, which is there is this craving for a new openness around this subject. And to some extent, the millennials are leading the way, though I'm sure you've noted, as I have, that there is this tsunami of spiritual memoirs that are flooding, and some of them very good, the marketplace and books about, you know, this particular experience from a very personal point of view. Um, but the youngsters is a huge surprise for me, absolutely huge. And they want to have the conversation now and not later. So so what's this? What's the goal then? They want to have the conversation. They want to break this barrier, right, that we don't talk about yes. death. Um, mm-hmm. But this is... You know, it it can it can seem morbid, but I, I guess their goal is what improve their lives ahead of their death well, by talking all about of death. The above and more. I mean, Caitlin's a good example because you'll see, as you've seen in the film in this opening portrait, this is a woman who had who was shocked. You know, the theme of the film into mortality, into an awareness of mortality, because at the age of eight, this terrible thing happened in front of her. Uh, a, child fell off an escalator and literally fell in front of her and you know you know just she described it in horrific detail and no one talked about it because that was really what was happening in that in that era best not to talk about the nightmares will go away and so this young woman and i don't think she's that different from a number of people who've had sort of dark initial experiences like this grew up at some level, terrified of death, and it shaped her life. I mean, she went off to the University of Chicago, she got a doctorate in mortuary practices, a brilliant woman, but she realized, and I think some people close to her said, something's wrong, I mean, you, you're, become, you're obsessed with the subject, and it's casting a shadow over your life, and she felt it, it was like a pressing the mute button. So what she did, which is quite you know, unusual, but it's an extreme version of what these millennials are doing in these death salons. She decided to look at it close up and personal and to liberate herself from her terrors. And I think most of us feel that you do look at your terrors close up. They, 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 not always, but frequently, and most psychiatrists would agree, they become less terrifying. So she goes into this crematoria. She works uh, there for several years about all of it and so, and and then you know she the the dead body no longer is as terrifying death no longer is as terrifying and not only is he not only terrifying she describes in the, in the interview that her life begins to bloom in a way she begins to love she has her first relationship she begins to laugh and to cry in, in a way she hadn't before she'd been putting the mute 
on. You know, she, you know, the fear of death is, you know, as the later on in the film, someone talks about that, the fear, you know, in the, in, into the near-death experience, woman who experienced She said, you're free to love in ways that you haven't before. So what isn't only about domesticating the terrors, it's also about living a more vivid life, a less fearful life, and also getting your story together. I mean, you hear her say at the end, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm an atheist and that my atoms will return to, you know, turn to the earth. I will be, I have a green burial, and I go sit occasionally in, in these beautiful green burial places, and I come at peace with that. And so she's crafted a narrative that works for her. And the terror is no longer cast that shadow over over her life. So it's dual and triple, you know, uh, sort of purposes for getting close to it. Um, and and for her, it really wasn't morbid. It was morbid before when she was obsessing about it through her sort of graduate studies. But it became something else when she got close to it. And that's it's it's so interesting because it's. At least to me, it's it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you, you run toward death, embrace it. I can understand overcoming the terror, but that you her life bloomed as as she embraced uh, you know the the idea of mortality. Yeah, no, it, it does, and and yet I'm sure if a, a shrink was in the room with us, would say, "Well, look, this is what I do in the daytime, in part with my patients who come in with these terrifying dreams." We look at them, we pull them apart, you know, piece by piece, and suddenly the whole is less than the parts. I mean, I think at some level, though, I agree with you, it does sound counterintuitive. It does at some deep level. It makes eminent psychological sense. Anyway, uh, it certainly worked for her, and it seems to be what a lot of these young men and women are craving. And I think it's not necessarily, they don't necessarily have had that terrifying experience that she had, but they want to sort of look at it and and sort of get their story together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find that fascinating. I really do. I think they're onto something, and I think it's part of this shift in the culture overall. Well, one of the parts of this, and Caitlin Doty talks about this, uh, she says we have an estrangement from the from the from the corpse, the dead body, and that's that's so we certainly I think most of us would would agree, you know, when we have used to be, um, you know, grandpa was in the in the family parlor, um, and everybody mm-hmm. would, would come by. Now, uh, the you know the dead family member goes to the mortician, and um, we don't have a whole lot of interaction with the dead body. A lot of people are bringing that up, and they brought it up with me. Uh, and and there is, a, a, you know, statistics I don't have at my hand, but there is a rise now in burials at home and dressing the body and staying with the body. And again, I think if a psychiatrist was on the show, they would say it really, and I've had friends who've done this and have spoken to this, and Buddhist friends primarily, keeping the body at at home for a day or so. It's a way to to both understand the finality of death, but also, you know, to to be able to say goodbye and, and to lose our terror of the dead body. The dead body, I mean, as friends have said to me, washing their mother or father, preparing them and dressing them, is not only a loving act, but it's 
it just familiarizes ourselves with our own bodies, which at one point will will be inert in those ways as well. So, you know, to use your word, counterintuitive, and yet it seems to make a real sort of sense psychologically and even spiritually. A mm. long goodbye, not that. I mean, I thought Caitlin was very moving. That one of the things that she talked about was her distress at finding that people were sort of phoning it in. They were they weren't even coming to the crematoria to say goodbye. They were sort of paying by by credit card and and all these urns that were not being picked up. Uh, and and I I think those rituals are important. Uh, and it's also respect for the life that we are saying goodbye to. So I think she's on to something. That's a powerful phrase which she uses, our estrangement from the body. So there's some, some truth to that. Let's take a break now. When we uh, come back, we have a couple more clips from the, the film and uh, talk some more about these profound themes. The film is Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death. It's the new film from uh, filmmaker Helen Whitney, and it premieres uh, on PBS all across the country on March 26th. Here in Utah, KUED, it uh, begins at 8 p.m. And uh, some of the people featured in the film, we talked about Caitlin Doty. She's an alternative uh, mortician, best-selling author. Uh, Adam Frank, astrophysicist and NPR commentator. Gabriel Byrne, uh, actor and uh, on stage and screen. Jim Crace, award-winning novelist, environmentalist. Max Moore, chronicist and futurist. Stephen Cave, a British philosopher, Phyllis Tickle, a near-death experience spokesperson and religious historian, Pastor Vernal Harris, Baptist minister and advocate for hospice care, and Jeffrey Peeler, a Mayo Clinic heart surgeon. So a diverse group of people, um, and uh, we'll talk more following this break. Arts Reporting on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost, celebrating USU's Year of the Arts. Few places in the world are as closely identified with dance as a theater in the heart of Moscow, the Bolshoi. There is no other ballet that can offer such variety, such high quality of performances as the ones at the Bolshoi Theater. We sit down with a Bolshoi prima ballerina, Olga Smirnova, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith-Needham on Utah Public Radio. Some evangelical churches are embracing virtual technology, and it's changing the way they practice their faith. We walked into one of these churches on a Sunday morning, and they lowered the screen to the floor, and the digital man was talking, and he asked a question, and people in the room raised their hand as if he could see them. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with Good Reason Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have uh, filmmaker Helen Whitney on the program today. Her new documentary film, Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death, premieres nationwide on PBS on March 26th. Here in Utah on KUED Channel 7, uh, you can hear it at 8 p.m. You can watch it. <laughs> I'm a radio guy. You can watch the film and listen to it at 8 p.m. Um, on March 26th. And uh, Helen Whitney is is with us. Uh, Helen Whitney... Uh, Beginning the film and uh, shot through it is uh, our lines from themes from Dylan Thomas's great poem, Do Not Go Gentle at That Good Night. 
Um, so the first couple of lines, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And in the, the trailer, we heard a lot of different perspectives on uh, what we should do with facing our own mortality. Uh, ranging from acceptance to to raging to the chronicist who says, uh, I'm not going to accept death, you know. Freeze me and uh, and let's let's wait uh, until I can be cured. And so I wonder. Um, let me uh, let me go first to um, let's hear a clip. Um, this is from a heart surgeon, Jeffrey Peeler, and he's on uh, the acceptance side. He, he's he's uh, trying to get to acceptance, um, but I think representative of most of us, uh, it's it's not a straightforward thing. Uh, let's hear. This is is Jeffrey Peeler, the the surgeon. I had this idea that. What the process is, is letting go. And that each step of letting go would reward you. And as it turns out, I found that to be the case, but it is not a linear journey. I had to give up operating because my fingers went numb from chemotherapy. Uh, And that was a very hard thing to do. But there are a lot of things that I've given up that I am so happy that I have jettisoned. I've given up any thoughts for material things. Things like envy and jealousy. And I've given up a lot of regrets, not all of them. But the problem is that just when I think I've got this thing down, something will happen, just a small thing. My daughter will come down the stairs in the morning and just this simple, hi, Daddy. How'd you sleep last night? And then I realize what's going, what ends. What I'll never know anything more about. And then I'm back. Uh, Back to stage one. That's a heart surgeon, uh, Jeffrey uh, P- uh, Peeler. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, acceptance. He, he's, he's making some progress there. That's, that's his goal. He's able to let go of some of his regrets, let go of the unimportant things. His daughter comes down to breakfast, and, he, and he's back to stage one, he says. Yeah. He was a remarkable man. I mean, he really, and, and his portrait, closes the film, but as you noted quite accurately, is that there's a range of not only stories, but a range of perspectives on death, a range of narratives, and a range of attitudes that the poem sort of opens up, whether it's radiant acceptance, which is this man's, whether it's pushback, which is the scientist, and everything in between, clenched fists or resignation, there are all kinds of perspectives, all kinds of narratives, and I very much wanted people who watch this film 
to find themselves in one or many of those stories. And I, I wanted to be very careful that even though we end this two hours with Jeffrey and his story really is it's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, he, he, he pushes back, understandably, he has prostate cancer for really off and on for 10 years and goes off to Bhutan and has a kind of revelation about the serenity of the lives he's seeing, and he comes back and he really stops all extraordinary procedures and decides to accept mortality to the extent that he builds his own coffin with his best friend. Uh, it, It solidifies their friendship, and he really reaches a point that he says, I would never go back to where I was before I had terminal cancer. And, and, it, and, and it, the, it is the concluding story. It's extremely moving, but I want, I want it to be very careful. And, uh, and even in this interview is that I, I don't want to make that the message of the film. I uh, to be very careful as these Buddhist uh, hospice workers sort of, you know, and I learn from them. There are many ways of going into the night, and it's hard enough that we do it alone, finally, in the end, than to place radiant acceptance as the only and the best sort of exit. Uh, it's like telling every, uh, all the rest of us that we're spiritual underachievers because we haven't <laughs> gone there. So, I mean, I was deeply moved by Jeffrey's story, and there's a reason I have placed it at the end, and I'm glad that you you taken a piece of it to, to to show but there are a range of other stories that we'll that people will find themselves in alongside with Jeffrey is Jeffrey too at least I hope so yeah, you, a wonderful man you, oh, wonderful yeah he 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 does seem uh, to be extraordinary um and his wife's in the film as well right um Yes, she's yeah. in the film, and as is his best friend, who he, the artist, who he, you know, with whom he makes the coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, you've used the word narrative story, very important. I wonder if you could talk about Jim Crace. Uh, you, you title him the storyteller. Um, he in, is. In he's the a, film. he's a eminent a novelist, a Booker winner. You know, just written. He's a British novelist, and I really, he's for me, he is. He is the character whom I identify with the most. Um, he was someone who was shocked into mortality when he let his father die the way that his father insisted on dying. His father was an old-fashioned sort of Marxist atheist who said, don't do anything, let me go to the crematorium, no rituals, don't even gather, just do it. And Jim did it and practically had a breakdown afterwards. I mean, he too was an atheist, but he's saying, wait a minute, we need a narrative, we need some rituals, we just don't send our parents that way without sort of beginning to think about what is our story, what is our value. And, and he went through a long period of saying, you know, he thinks that, as you you know, as you mentioned him, he said, you know, we all must come up with a narrative of solace in the face of this great mystery. And 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 he envies, you know, religious folks. He said they have armor, even though he's got chinks in the armor, but these great religious narratives really do help. And us atheists, we've got to be canny and on the ball and, and come up with something that will offer us solace and 
And in his portrait, you see that struggle and what he comes up with, which is really nature. He immerses himself in nature, the love of it, and 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 feels, you know, that by looking attentively, attentively at at nature and the return of of everything in the spring, and 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 you know, he he comes to a kind of peace about the fact that his body will be returned to nature. In fact, he writes a whole novel called Being Dead, in which a couple sort of, which is dead, you know, open the film, and they lie in the grass, and over years they, they do return to the earth. So it's, uh, and, he, and, he, and he's just wonderful on this whole idea of stories and the importance of stories. I mean, he has this great line like, the narrative doesn't have to be true, but it has to offer real comfort. And he has another wonderful line about storytelling is the, what did he say? Storytelling is the Trojan horse, which we sneak in under the gates to offer us solace. Uh, it's, it's, it really does. Storytelling does offer that offer that solace. And that's what he does as a storyteller. And he makes a very good case for it. He says it doesn't, I think he's very honest, he said, when the doctor comes in with a bad diagnosis, is everything going to go you know, away, all that I have done? Perhaps. But he said, I think I will go back to the kind of peace that I've found uh, in nature. And that is his narrative. He's a kind of sentimental atheist. That's how he describes himself. Yeah, uh, uh, I think he sees himself as a deeper atheist than his father was. His father, he says, was... Uh because he was a socialist, he he needed to be an atheist. It was a kind of a shallow atheism, but he's searching for deeper yeah. stories. Um, I wonder what it is about, you know, I think we could all nod our heads and say this very important story narrative that sustains us. What What is it about story narrative? Especially, you know, this ultimate question of mortality that sustains us and helps us. Well, I think it's a narrative of value. I mean, it's a way of saying, you know, I've been here, and it just hasn't been meaningless, and I'm shaping it, and I'm finding out, and I'm answering the question, what is of ultimate value to me? Uh, and for some people in the film, by the way, there's an additional two hours. Uh, there's another nine uh, characters, but that I'm hoping PBS either will put on or it'll be streamed all for four hours together. But in that, there are some artists, and there are Buddhists, and you know, a Jewish historian and 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 doc, you know uh, mainstream doctors are pushing back against that, each with a different story. But um, the the act of storytelling is a way of feeling a little less lonely in the universe. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a way of saying, oh, you too have experienced the same thing as I have, and. It's a way of us shaping our story, so it isn't just a series of meaningless fragments. And the stories in the film are the story of belief. This is one a very important story, which the Black Baptist minister <clears throat> offers. Of course, it's a story that is shattered for a while because both of his sons die. And he's, a, he's a preacher, a Black Baptist preacher, and for a while he loses his faith, and he has to pull back you know, and just build again, just stick by stick his faith, which is perhaps even stronger now that it's been tested to that degree. 
and there are artists in the film who who struggle to find you know the solace in art that something will last after that they've after they've died um and that's a story that I actually found very few artists sort of relied on very few artists and and then you have the astrophysicist and he finds solace in a way that I never could I mean I look up at the heavens I feel sort of an existential terror. It's so far away, and I'm so small and so big. But this is a man who lost his brother at an early age, was shocked into mortality, and he was a lonely kid without his brother, so he started sort of relating to the stars. They were his only friends, and he became this star sort of astrophysicist. He's actually an NPR, on NPR all the time as an interpreter of science. And he looks up at the heavens, and he says, my little drama my, is not diminished by this great cosmic drama. I feel at home in the universe. He actually finds solace in that narrative, and I admire him for it. It, it hasn't worked for me, but it does work for a number of people. <laughs> so I, I, you know, my, there's a range of narratives that offer solace, I'm sure, most of the time, but not all. Um, you know, when that diagnosis comes through or you lose your child or you've had a jolt, you have to sort of examine once again, well, what is of value? What what gets me up in the morning? What What is the narrative that makes being here and saying goodbye to it all a little less difficult? And I think someone says in the film, I believe, um, you know, you you have this idea that we're I'm going to die, but it's when you get the diagnosis or whatever it is, that story, whether it be religion or whatever the narrative is for you, it's you know, three a.m. It really gets tested. Yes, that's when you really know. Yes, yeah, yes, uh, yes. That's a woman who she's in the she's in the, the last two. Uh, she's if she's present in the first two hours, part one, and I hope if. This is ultimately streamed all four hours. You'll see her in part two. She's a Native American doctor trained at Harvard and an integrative medicine uh, specialist. And she suddenly got a diagnosis out of the blue that she had four-stage cancer. And, you know, and she's the first one to say, she's the one who says that. Boy, we all say it so glibly. And then when it happens... You have to re-examine again what, what, what is what, what really is of value to her, and she is someone who's fascinating. And she, she has real rituals that sustain her. She's half of her family was Catholic, the other half Native American, and so she believes in her ancestors are there ahead working for her, and the, and the ritual of communion of Catholic communion is of great value to her. So she speaks eloquently and powerfully about the need for ritual. And she actually you know, speaks about the vision quest in the Native American tradition about how going, you know, going into the wilderness, into the dark and sitting there terrified with everything you know, alone was something that she did when she was young. And how now that she is close to death, how that sustains her right now is fascinating. How she draws upon those rituals. So there's, there's all of us. I hope and I do believe, given the screenings that we've had at film festivals and informal and formal screenings, 
people come out of this film not depressed, sort of enlivened, even exhilarated, and they've come sort of ready to sort of say, I want to live more consciously now, and so what is my story? So I think it's had that effect so far. I don't know if that effect on you, but um, it certainly has had it on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and it's important. It's very important to, to have these conversations. That's one of the things, one of the goals, I'm sure, of the, of the film. Yes, um, e- even though we, you know, we don't, these are important conversations, and we should have them. I was interested to, to hear Jim Crace say, uh, you know, this is, even though this is the central focus of, of his life, he doesn't talk, doesn't have these conversations all the time. Doesn't go to the pub and bring up the subject of death, you know. <laughs> right. He said his wife would say, go get a grip. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But but he would agree. I think that these are important conversations. Uh, let's take another break, come back with our last segment. I want to get into talking about this idea of certainty. This really hit me in the film. I, um, so Some things I think clicked for me that I hadn't, understood before uh, listening to Majid Nawaz. He's a former radical Islamist. Um, and Adam Frank talks about this as well. He, he finds solace or has found solace in mathematics, right? He wants, he wants certainty. And especially with these big questions of mortality. And uh, we'll, we'll hear from Majid Nawaz about how he found certainty <laughs> and his journey is taking him to uncertainty. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll hear more from the film and talk about it. Uh, the film is Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death, uh, Helen Whitney's new documentary film. It premieres nationwide on PBS on March 26th here in Utah on KUED. The time is 8 p.m. on March 26th when you can uh, see the film. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie, and restaurant reviews, available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. Some evangelical churches are embracing virtual technology, and it's changing the way they practice their faith. We walked into one of these churches on a Sunday morning and they lowered the screen to the floor and the digital man was talking and he asked a question and people in the room raised their hand as if he could see them. I'm Sarah McConnell, join me for With Good Reason. Wake up With Good Reason Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with filmmaker Helen Whitney. Our previous films have included The Mormons, Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, Forgiveness, A Time to Love and A Time to Hate, uh, the new film is Into the Night, Portraits of Life and Death. It premieres nationwide on PBS on March 26th. The uh, start time for the film on KUED here in Utah is 8 p.m. on that uh, March 26th. And uh, we have uh, another about 10 minutes left with uh, Helen Whitten here. You can uh, join the conversation if you would like by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or toll-free 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So I mentioned before the break, um, former radical Islamist Majid Nawaz, uh, just to set this uh, clip up, uh, he's Pakistani origin, he uh, grew up in England, um, and uh, at a certain point, um, uh, skinheads were out uh, targeting, as they called them, Pakis. Um, and he, he was a confused teenager, confused especially about his identity. And he talks about how some friends brought him certainty, religious certainty uh, and political certainty. So let's hear this from, uh, from the former radical Islamist uh, Majid Nawaz. Oh, I remember in some of these study circles, 
receiving vivid description of the afterlife. On the Day of Judgment, I remember being told that we would be petrified. There would be a burning sun right above us. We'd be drowning in our own sweat. Hordes of us, thousands of millions of us that have been resurrected at the same time, we'd be panicking, running around, you know, begging people to forgive us for the sins we've committed against them. We'd have to cross what's called the Sirat, which is the, the bridge from the plane of the Day of Judgment to the reckoning with God. And the bridge is the width of a hair, and only the true believers could cross it without falling into hell. And then we get to the reckoning with God himself. Every single one of our deeds is recounted. And it's all written in the ledger. But don't forget, it recorded it all before you were even born. So those sins were already there. So then God says to me, do you deserve paradise because of your good deeds or because of my mercy? And obviously I'm gonna say my mercy because I'm scared right now. I'm not sure I'm going to paradise. There was one solution that will definitely circumvent the uncertainty that comes with judgment, and that was martyrdom. Martyrdom was a one-way ticket, non-stop, directly to paradise. While everyone else is waiting for the day of reckoning, the martyrs will be small green birds flying around the throne of their Lord until the day of judgment. And then they will be resurrected as fully formed beings straight in paradise. This wasn't made up. The religious side was true to traditional Muslim interpretations of the faith and the afterlife. The innovation was to take that religion and link it to a political ideology. And I saw then the power of not fearing death, the power that I could yield against my enemies in being so certain that the truth was on my side that I was prepared to die for it. And it was a first life lesson. That's Majid Nawaz, who's a former radical Islamist. He, he goes on to say that uh, the particular group he was with, fortunately for him, didn't believe in terrorism, um, as we've come to know it. But Helen Whitney, this, I think, helped me to, to you know, to clarify in my mind, I, you know, why? <laughs> why these terrorists, you know, suicide bombers and, and the like? Um, but but if it give, gives you a certain power if you're a confused young man and uncertain about a lot of things and and you can reach this absolute certainty. And more than that, um, you can lose the fear of death, and it gives you a certain power. Yeah. I, you know, I, this, as you accurately, this is not a Muslim story. This is a story for me driven by an idea that I really thought essential to this film, and really, and, 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 and Noah says it well, how the lust for the absolute certainty about what happens to us when we die can lead to sort of greatness in, in religion, in art, in science, as uh, Frank Adam Frank talks about in the preceding portrait, but it also can take us to very dark places, and fundamentalist Islam is the only the latest strain of this universal, and I do think it's universal, uh, and destructive tendency in the history of all major 
major religions, and in and in the human animal. You know, it, it probably precedes religion that need for certainty to know what happens um, after we die. Uh, he's a fascinating man, and I uh, was on a panel recently. Came, you know, in one of the screenings of this film, and uh, and and spoke about you know his his journey and and his living comfortably now in ambiguity uh in agnosticism uh and uh, I, I i i thought it was an important story i led into it uh, the story that precedes it is this astrophysicist and he is fascinating because he is, takes you into the benign sort of expression of of this need for certainty uh he loves the stars and he you know he finds his place in nature but then he gets wrapped up uh into mathematics and and the beauty of these universal laws and he becomes as he describes it a platonist he begins to believe that these laws are timeless and and many of them are it's Striking how many mathematical laws are still with us and haven't changed, but nonetheless, he he he's on top of his own sort of craving for certainty, and then he pulls away from Platonism and says, "You know, I understand that craving and all of us that something is out there that's going to last longer than we do, and how beautiful and how powerful that idea is." But he said. I can't really rest my hat on that. Uh, and he pulled away to the kind of smart agnosticism that he has when he won't take a strident position about what happens to us after we live or die, but no longer is consumed with that need to be certain. And that and his story butts right up into uh, Nawaz's because he does say that lust for certainty is Adam Frank take us to very dark places, and then Nawaz invites us into his story, all too human, how his need for certainty and his extraordinary circumstances of getting, you know, practically killed on his daily walk to, you know, to school and in, in, you know, outside London uh, by the neo-Nazis led him to to know what was on the other side of death and um, and the history that followed that. Yeah, that that uh, that quest for certainty can be very comforting, can be destructive. I guess it depends on where you go with it. But ultimately, you know, if you're a religious person, it is it is faith. If you're not, it's yeah. it's that narrative. And and uh, of course, none of us knows for sure. It's the undiscovered country, right? As Shakespeare says. So you're. Oh, he said it so well. From from who's born, no traveler has returned. <laughs> yes, no traveler has returned. Though, of course. Phyllis Tickle would say otherwise. That, that's right. Woman, and, yeah. yeah, she would say, "I did come back." She's a fascinating religious historian, a former publisher of Publishers Weekly, and you know, multiple doctorates, and brilliant. And she had a near-death experience that shaped, if not defined, her life. And she puts it because she said, "To the fear of death went," which many people who've had near-death experiences talk about. This fear of death went. And with it, my fear of living a full life. She said, "I her whole 
attitude towards Orthodox Christianity changed. She became looser, less doctrinaire, more more of a sense of the sacred, which she felt she was touched by, and all fear of death went. And let me tell you, I I had spoke to her a year before uh, the interview. I, I've known her. She's she's a a huge name as a historian of religion, and 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 she agreed to be in this film. And just the day or two before I went down to shoot her, she called me and said, "Look, I've canceled everything, but I won't ca- cancel this interview because I just got a diagnosis. I'll be dead in a month or two, mm, and wow. I'm stunned." Yeah. And I arrived. All of her six children were down there with me, and she had such serenity, such equanimity such playfulness that it almost offended the children who were weeping and crying and they say, why isn't our mother more upset? <laughs> she was, I, I have never, I mean, I have been at the bedside and I have in this three and a half years spoken to many people who are at the edge of death or near it or at all stages. And I've never seen anyone depart with the kind of equanimity that this extraordinary woman did. Never. And never. we'll we'll uh, have to uh, we'll have to leave it there. But it illustrates a, an important point in the film that your your understanding of death, your your uh, understanding of your own mortality, does affect the way you live. Uh, we'll we'll leave it there. We've reached the end of our time. Helen Whitney's new documentary film, Into the Night: Portraits of Life and Death, is premiering uh, nationwide on PBS March twenty sixth, eight p.m. is the start time on KUD here in Utah. Helen Whitney, a pleasure as always. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.